You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. The treasures of China and Southeast Asia are beyond anything young Marco Polo could have imagined. Ivory palaces decorated with gold, silver, and jewels. Huge, sprawling fortresses that dwarf anything in Europe. Wealth beyond his wildest dreams. Yet this strange new land is also rife with danger. Murderous wild beasts, cannibals, pirates, and bandits roam the uncharted wilderness in search of prey. And yet none of these apex predators are quite as dangerous as the Mongol warriors with whom Marco Polo now finds himself. They are ferocious in battle as he has seen many times. Yet to some of these Mongol generals, there's a very thin line between friend and enemy. The rewards are great, the stakes high, the danger very real. It will take cunning, wit, bravery, and a little bit of luck if Marco Polo wishes to survive to tell the tale of his adventure. Hello and welcome back to Badass of the Week. My name is Ben Thompson. I'm here with uh, my co-host, Dr. Pat Larish. And Pat, we are here to do part two of Marco Polo. And I just kind of wanted to see if maybe we can get started by recapping kind of where we're at at the end of part one. Yeah. So we're calling this episode part two of Marco Polo, but maybe it would be better to call last week's episode like the prequel. It's true. We didn't actually talk about Marco very much in, in part one, did we? <laughs> I mean, we spent time on his dad and his uncle. And okay, that's cool because they had adventures in their own right and they're badass in their own right. And it's also setting up the scene for what's going to happen in today's episode. And it's going to sound kind of cliched and kind of tropey. But like, this is the thing that happens in, you know, young adult fantasy novels. You've got this protagonist, you know, this young protagonist whose parents are absent for whatever reason. And okay, Marco Polo's dad was not around for much of his formative years. And then all of a sudden something happens. You know, it's kind of like a cliche for fiction writing. You know, a stranger comes to town. Who's the stranger? Well, it's this guy and his brother who show up in Venice 
on the docks of Venice. It's your long last dad here for it, I think. But like, I don't even know if this counts as being tropey because it predates like Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter and all of that. Maybe, okay. maybe I they mean, all got their ideas from yeah, Marco Polo. Uh, quite possibly. <laughs> quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that there's some of this in the Odyssey sort of, you know, variation on it or whatever. But oh, so you just, yeah. just out nerded me. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. But, but the, okay. But the truth of the matter is, you know, um, given the realities of travel, the realities of merchant routes, you know, you can't just hop on a plane and be somewhere, you know, at most 24 hours later, you know, you're like schlepping along on, I don't know, like in a caravan, boom, to boom, to boom, to boom, you know, and what happens while you're gone? Well, I don't know, your kids grow up. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it it's the time period where it's not that weird that you didn't see the guy for 15 years. Right? Yeah. Like you assume he's dead, but you're not sure. Yeah. 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 Dead or maybe kind of started a new life elsewhere. Um, but as it turns out, you know, OK, we're in Venice, which, you know, is cool in its own right. But if you're a teenager, you might feel like you're stuck there. And Marco Polo is here. He's in Venice. Boat comes in. These guys get off the boat. Something about that one guy. Like, what is it? Like, his face? Is he like a doppelganger or something? Marco, I am your father. Except, like, in a non-evil way, I guess. Like Gandalf and Darth Vader together. I sure, don't know. <laughs> why not? Yeah. Young Marco Polo, who's kind of full of energy and looking for something to do, sees his dad and his uncle, and they say, would you like to go on an adventure? And he says... He says, hell yeah. And... uh Let's get into it. This is the story of what happened to Marco Polo and why he's the name we remember and not Niccolo Polo. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.
So we're back and we are talking about Marco Polo in China. His first uh, meeting with Kublai Khan, he is in Xanadu, which is, as we've mentioned, is not always the roller skating disco movie, but it is also the amazing like palace complex to the northwest of Beijing. And Marco Polo's mind is blown, right? He's 21 years old. And you got to remember, he's from Venice, which is probably the richest town in Europe at the time that he is traveling here, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, he's from basically the New York City of Europe. He gets here and he cannot fathom the size and scale and opulence of the things that he's looking at. He says that Xanadu has 16 miles of walls that go around several palaces constructed entirely of marble. Kublai Khan appears to him pulled on a chariot. There's like an amazing like throne that's on this pedestal like pulled by four elephants he's got a zoo with all these exotic animals in it he's got this huge like hunting ground where you can hunt any kind of animal you want i was gonna say you said zoo but oh please we call it a menagerie Mm, yeah a menagerie that's a better way of phrasing it yeah like he kublai khan is like there's deer in this like hunting preserve on his property and the way that kublai khan hunts them is by bringing cheetahs out on horseback and releasing them to go kill the deer for him. That's like the level that we're talking about here. (laughs) Release the cheetahs. Release the cheetahs to catch the deer, and that's how I hunt. Uh I pointed the cheetah in the correct direction, and therefore I am an amazing hunter. Yes. And, I mean, Marco Polo has been watching the traders come in and out of the biggest commercial hub in Europe and he just cannot imagine what he's looking at. He's like, what is this, right? And Kublai Khan is, Kublai Khan's very different from the rest of the Mongol kings and Khans and stuff. He is a little bit more cultured. He loves to hunt, he loves to fight. That's a very Mongol thing. He likes both of those things, but he also has kind of really adopted Chinese culture. He's really kind of adopted like art and music and kind of, being cool with other religions and other people and other ideas. And he kind of wants to yeah. accumulate. He's just like, hey, tell me about Christianity because I'm curious. Right, exactly. Right. Like, hey, yeah. you guys. Or Nestorian Christianity. Yeah. Sure. I mean, he's down with it. He doesn't care. He's not Catholic. He's not Nestorian Christian. Yeah. He is he's Mongol religion leaning Buddhist, which is kind of the dominant Chinese religion uh, at this time. And But he's curious. He wants to know stuff. He's like, OK, well, you guys clearly have some money. You're dressed nice when you show up, you're bringing cool stuff that I like. Maybe we can set up trade between our two peoples. Maybe we can kind of grow and learn from each other. And and he presents himself as this kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, Renaissance man, because he is going to kind of help usher in the Renaissance, the the capital R Renaissance in in uh, in Europe. Him and Marco Polo together are going to do that. Yeah. Um, but he is very different from anybody that Marco Polo has met. And just... Palaces on palaces, right? Like he's got his whatever 15 wives or whatever, and each of them has a palace that would rival any palace for any king in Europe. And Marco Polo just cannot imagine this stuff when he's looking at it. And he's got a little bit of an in with Kublai Khan because Kublai Khan already likes uh, Niccolo and Maffeo Polo. He's like, hey, you're my guys who go on missions for me. Yeah. And he's like, well, you you know, you kind of I wanted 100 guys and you brought me one really good one. So maybe maybe that's worth it. He brought the other stuff like we're kind of we're negotiating here. We're doing some prime directive kind of stuff We're we're building bonds between our people without war. 
That's awesome. And Marco Polo makes an impression on Kublai basically immediately. Marco Polo is very interesting because he's not what you would expect from like a European explorer traveling to the Far East in the Middle Ages. He's on board with everything. He's like, I like silk. This feels awesome. I'll wear it. You know, I'll try your your food I've never had before. Like this look, this looks great. Yeah. But also the spices thing that nobody's had cumin before. Yeah. Turmeric or whatever else goes into chicken tikka masala. Uh, but yeah. so he's kind of on board with everything. And he r- runs this very interesting and very good like diplomatic line between being He's cool and he's personable and he's friendly and he's nice and he gets along really well with Kublai Khan and he doesn't like do the thing that a lot of Europeans do at this time, which is like be too hardcore about the religious thing, you know, like, yeah, you got your religion. That's cool. You can do your thing. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life yeah. and I'm not going to like, I don't know, try to chop your head off because you're a Buddhist or whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He dresses in the local clothes. He learns the language. He kind of he kind of integrates himself into the society in a way that I think a lot of Europeans wouldn't have at this time. And I think that there are some things in his writing that are a little bit problematic looking at it from 2022. But yeah. for 1270, this guy is like he is along for the ride and he is kind of going with it. And it's it's great. It's very refreshing. I was very like happily surprised when I started reading some of uh, some of the stuff that he wrote about this. It was definitely better than I was expecting. And and he just kind of integrates himself and becomes friends with the Khan basically right away. As one does. Right. He's funny and he's smart. Yeah. But he's also smart enough to know when to not piss off the Mongols, because that is also an important thing that you need to kind of manage when you are more or less a prisoner of the Khan. (laughs) Note to self, do not piss off the Mongols. Mm -hmm. When you are at the Mongol horde's mercy, you should just kind of try to swallow your pride every once in a while. (laughs) Roll with it. And he's very good at it. He's good at it and he does a good job of it. And he, even more than Niccolo and Maffeo, he kind of rises above them even and to become a a favorite of Kublai Khan. So for the next 17 years, Marco Polo remains in China. He is an emissary. He's a diplomatic emissary. He goes on diplomatic missions. He translates documents. He does some trading stuff. He even like serves as the Khan's representative, like administrative representative over the city of Yangzhou for a while. He does whatever the Khan needs him to do. Okay, so he's so he's an outsider, he's a foreigner, and he somehow manages to find a place in the civil service? Or Yeah, and it works well for Kublai because Kublai Khan is also an outsider. He's a Mongol administering yeah, over yeah. Han Chinese. And so he relates to Marco Polo in some way. Like they find this common ground on like, we're both kind of running the show here, but neither of us are from here. Neither of us are, we're both kind of out of our depth. And and there's a lot of people here who wish we weren't here. So there's a, you know, there's yeah. you're able to kind of find some common ground there. And Marco Polo starts going on travels all over Asia. He goes to Japan. He goes to Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Vietnam. He goes to uh, some of the islands. He goes to India. He's traveling all over the place and he sees all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Ivory palaces, gold, silver, jewels, fine silks. He's eating the best foods and the spices. He's getting all of like the stuff Mm, that he's sharing dinner with the Khan, right? 
diamonds. I'm getting hungry. Yeah, it's like there's diamonds and then there's there's scarves from cashmere, there's ivory, there's these huge sprawling fortresses and and cities and palaces all over all over the empire that he is just amazed by, right? Things that you know, cities that dwarf anything that is known to the Europeans at the time, right? And like I keep saying, he's from the one of the more cosmopolitan areas of Europe. But when he gets to China, he's just like, yeah. dude, you have no idea. Yeah, Venice is Venice is the shit. It's amazing. I was there last summer and my yeah. mind was blown, but his mind was blown just as hard. Like Venice had its own empire. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. yeah. It spanned most of the Adriatic, right? Yeah. Like golden pagodas in Burma. And he goes to Hangzhou, which has this huge uh, lake in the middle of it that's beautiful. It's got millions of inhabitants, which is mind blowing for him at the time, right? Venice had one main square and Hangzhou has 10. And each one of them is a half mile by a half mile. Oh, wow. And it's like Kublai Khan, the way he describes it and the way that he always referred to China was that like the difference between China and Europe is that Kublai Khan counts his money and his people and his scale in the millions, which nobody in Europe was doing at the time. Wow. Right. Yeah. He gets a Marco Polo gets a nickname later in his life, Marco Millions, because that's all he talks about is how he. Il Milione. Yeah. Il Milione. Yeah. How, how uh, he talks about how Kublai measured things in millions and he talks about it so much that he becomes yeah. known as Marco Millions. Marco Millions. That's a, <laughs> that sounds like a rapper name. Oh, for me, I, I was thinking I was thinking Mob Guy. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm Marco Millions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he sees some dangerous stuff, right? Uh-huh. He encounters cannibals in Sumatra. He encounters bandits and pirates. There's a group in Myanmar that um, would kill travelers and cut them up because they wanted to steal their souls. Ooh, that's harsh. And Marco Millions goes there on a mission from the con to tell them to stop doing that. <laughs> okay, how does this go? Does Marco succeed in telling them to stop cutting up people or does Marco himself get cut up into pieces? They do not cut him up and turn him into pieces okay. when uh, Presumably, when you are the mouth of Kublai Khan, you you're prevented from that particular superstition. Or okay, whatever. that might give you some cred. Yeah, yes. yeah. He so he sees unimaginable works of construction and mm-hmm. uh, jungle, like stuff that you don't have in in Europe, right? Even just going into yeah. a jungle would be mind blowing for a yeah. European. Yeah, like if you're from Venice, there's like deeply cool shit in Venice, and you're just like, whoa. It's heavily forested, right? That's how they built the whole city. They just sunk logs in the lagoon and built a city on top of it. Yeah. But like, but that that was like before, and like the trees are now substructure. Yeah, and then you're Marco Polo, and you're like, oh wow, I'm in the jungle. You're in a rainforest, which like. Can yeah. you imagine being dropped into Vietnam from like France? <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. It's a foreign country. It's science fiction, right? Yeah. And he's seen all these animals he's never seen before, right? Camels, horses. He rides on camels, horses, and elephants. All, just on his way to China, he rides camels, horses, and elephants. Yeah. When he's there, he's seeing lions, tigers, elephants. He sees what he calls unicorns, which we think are probably rhinos. One horn, big four legs, one horn. He doesn't, he just mentions them in passing. He's like, yeah, if you like unicorns, they got unicorns here. <laughs> But we think he's probably talking about rhinos. <laughs> okay. Okay. So so he mentions these in passing. In passing. So he sees a creature that he believes is a unicorn, or he might be a unicorn, and that's not 
the most important thing that he's talking about. He was more focused on the dudes that were going to kill him and eat his soul than he was on the rhinos. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I saw some unicorns, okay, fine. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Okay, like, oh, wow, mythical creature. Okay, dude, okay, no, 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 don't kill him. Yeah, don't, no, don't, 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 don't kill him. <laughs> he sees... Um, he sees guys off the coast of Singapore that are called shark charmers that like keep the sharks away from the fishermen. He hunts uh, He hunts wolves. He uses eagles to hunt wolves and he uses cheetahs to hunt deer. Well, he uses eagles. Is That's like a Mongol thing, right? Totally a Mongol thing, right? The, the Mongols yeah. love to fight and hunt. And Kublai Khan, no matter how cultured he is, how advanced he is among the Mongol people, he has still got that Mongol heart and he likes to kill things and he hunts yeah yeah the golden eagles that like kill wolves like but yeah but like the thing about the um like hunting with eagles that's a thing even to today yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so he goes and does that he does the cheetah hunting thing which i don't think is a deal anymore mm. i don't think they have cheetahs in asia anymore uh but i mean it's animal planet stuff right it's but it's also science fiction yeah. it's like a D adventure right where he's seeing all these crazy mm. monsters the man-eating creatures he's in sumatra he's these tigers right like they don't have any of the stuff where he came from yeah and it's blowing his mind but he's he's doing this and then he gets he works his way up i mean 17 years is a long time he's mm-hmm. he's doing all of these things while he's there he eventually gets promoted up to uh you know as the mongols are when you get promoted high enough you suddenly start taking on military details right as one does right so he starts marching with the mongol army yeah on missions to like quell bandits or expand the empire or do various mongol related things so he's marching at the head of um an army of two hundred thousand mounted mongols and i want to put this in perspective yeah the two hundred thousand mounted mongols so this is two hundred thousand human beings on 200,000 horses? They usually would carry three horses. Oy. So this okay. is this is the point I want to make. And this is a point that I think is very important when understanding Marco Polo that we need to talk about, which is the scale of what he is experiencing is not on the level of anything anybody in Europe ha- could comprehend. Yeah. So let's look for reference. Let's look at the big battle that created England as we know it today, right? The Battle of Hastings, 1066. It's 200 years before this, but time progresses. Everybody's still riding on horseback and shooting bow and arrows and fighting with swords, right? It's 200 years, but like not a lot has changed technologically. William the Conqueror had uh, stirrups, but that's, you know, (laughs) that was like the technological (laughs) advancement over the Romans. And so Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror goes and he fights and he he defeats the Saxons and he takes over England. We don't know for sure, but best estimate, 20,000 soldiers total among both sides combined. Marco Polo is riding at the head of an army that is 10 times the size of that entire battlefield. Wow. It's something that we need to think about while we talk about him because, you know, one thing that is kind of a challenge when talking about Marco Polo is that, like, we've seen pictures of all this stuff that he's talking about. And we've you can go to a zoo and see a rhino now. And and 250,000 guys is smaller than the current U.S. Army. But compared to what was going on in Europe in 1200, this is out of control. Yeah. And also just in like actual human terms, like as a human being on the ground, how big is 200,000? Could you imagine the sound of 200,000 horses riding by you? Like, yeah. It would take an hour for them to all ride past you, right? Maybe longer. Yeah. And how does an actual human being conceptualize 200,000? Like, 
if one goes to a football stadium. Depends on the stadium, but you're looking at 60 maybe? Yeah. Three football stadiums worth of people? And that would be like NFL stadiums, not like high school football stadiums, unless you're in Texas, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Marco's there for some pretty big battles. So he's going into, I mean, he travels everywhere, right? So he's going through jungle. He's passing through ancient ruins of old, like, Khmer and old Viet, like, ruins in the jungle, right? Yeah. He's going through the Gobi Desert. He's go There's old ruins. There's current stuff. He's fighting in the desert. He's fighting in the jungle. He's traveling everywhere over these 17 years. He gets sent everywhere that he can possibly go, and he's leading these armies. And he starts to get a little bit disillusioned by what's going on. So he likes all of this opulence and the spices. He loves the, like, he loves the food, he loves the the, yeah. the language, he loves the culture, he loves the mm -hmm. dress and, and all of this stuff. He doesn't love the slaughtering of the women and children. He doesn't love the like launching catapults at buildings and killing people and beheading all of the surviving men and the, the, the real like nitty gritty Mongol stuff that the Mongols are still doing at this time period. This kind of like, like I said, Kublai Khan likes to hunt and he likes to fight and he likes to wage war and he likes to you know, subject his enemies to his wrath. But for Marco Polo, this doesn't fit the idea of Kublai Khan that he had of this kind of cultured Renaissance man when he's standing mm -hmm. on this field watching the Mongol army like behead prisoners of war and women and children. He, he's, he doesn't like it. And he's like, oh, maybe actually this guy's not as awesome as I thought he was. Yeah. And he starts to get a little bit sad once he gets into this level of of power where he's marching with the army like it was really fun when we all dressed up and marched in a parade but it's it's less fun now that i'm standing on this blood-soaked sand with people screaming for the their families you know made. okay yeah no i say i say I, I say he gets to see the sausage being made but it's like no it's like he gets to see humans being decapitated the sausage being made is like a great example right like that's how these people are being treated right like this is well, how, this okay, is yeah, what that's how yeah. like these mongol lieutenants dealt with their prisoners right like yeah, yeah. it's brutal and it's awful and it's you know it's one thing to be like the you know drive your enemies before you and hear the lamentations of their women but it's a very different thing to I mean, that's a Genghis Khan quote. I should stipulate that, yeah, you know. To actually hear the lamentations. It's very different to be standing there watching that happen, you know. Yeah. Because it yeah. takes hours, you know, and it's not like. Okay, it takes hours. And also it's like horrific. Right, exactly. You're just standing there watching like a, yeah. a, a horror movie for hours, right? Like yeah. brutal, brutal stuff. And he did not like it. He was not a fan of this. So that starts to disillusion him. And the other thing that he's thinking at this point is that like he's been there 17 years Kublai Khan, he was he's he was 21 when he got there, but Kublai Khan was older. Kublai Khan's old now, right? Kublai Khan doesn't have much longer to live. And, you know, when you're Marco Polo and you work your way in close with the Khan of the Mongol horde, you don't do that without making a few enemies in court who are also Mongol warriors who may succeed Kublai Khan as the Khan. And yeah. Marco Polo and, and, and Nicolo and Maffeo, his dad and his uncle, were like, we got to get out of here before Kublai dies. Because when Kublai dies, yeah, we're done for, right? Like, we're going to be on the first wave of purges for whoever replaces him. <laughs> so we got to go. So they go to Kublai and they're like, we got to go. And Kublai's like, no, you're too valuable. You can't leave. Uh-oh. So they have to ask him like five or six times. It takes them a couple years before he finally lets them go. Oy. So he does eventually let them go in 1291. Um, he gives them the mission to 
escort his daughter, the princess Kokochin. Uh, she's mm. going to go to Persia to seal a marriage alliance with the Ilkhanate. So it's not Hulagu Khan anymore, but it's that part of the that section of the of the horde. So this is probably incestuous in some way to some degree, but Kublai Khan's daughter is going to go marry Hulagu Khan's nephew or whatever, <laughs> you yeah, know. And... But maybe this is like this is like baseline mm -hmm. you know yeah it's not full valerian but it's it's yeah. it's, it's a little yeah, Habsburgian, I, I guess <laughs> yeah yeah and i i guess like this is just sort of what happens among royal houses yeah that's how you get that's how you get rasputin you get everybody having hemophilia and that's how you end up with rasputin <laughs> okay. okay so they are going to go by sea which is a kind of a new thing for marco polo he's sailed to a bunch of the islands and stuff but this is the farthest he's going to have traveled by sea so we're in the 13th century and so sea routes from china maybe not completely established or no lots of pirates happening here it's dangerous he's traveling with the princess of the mongol empire so he's He's not too worried about it. Uh, he's got a pretty big bodyguard entourage around him. Okay, good for him. And so they go to Singapore, they go to Sumatra, they go to India. And then from India, they go by land through Persia, drop off the princess, no problems, continue on towards the Black Sea, and eventually decide they're going to sail for home. They, they don't want to go back because there's too many enemies for them in, in China. And um, after 24 years and maybe somewhere between 15 and 20,000 miles. Oh, wow. Marco Polo finally returns to Venice. And what's Venice like when he gets back? Like Venice is, he returns home to Venice and he didn't have much there, right? He had his uncle and his aunt yeah. that raised him, but like he yeah. didn't have much to go home to. He didn't have like a wife and kids or anything like that there. He goes back and Venice is at war with the uh, Italian city of Genoa. You have all these Italian city-states at the time. So Genoa mm -hmm. and Venice are at war. So Marco Polo's like, well, okay, I'll fight to defend Venice. He he comes back. He's incredibly wealthy. He's got all of these treasures and all of these things he brought back from China with him. But he also has feels this responsibility to his hometown against the Genoans. And he he feels loyalty to Venice, so he goes to fight for them. He, he buys a boat and he buys a trebuchet and he puts the trebuchet on his boat and he goes to fight wait, wait, the okay. he, he has a boat and he puts the trebuchet on the boat. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And he <laughs> commands it and he hires a crew and he commands it in battle uh -huh. for Venice against Genoa. And uh, he's defeated. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Oh. He is involved Even with in a, a trebuchet on a boat. With the trebuchet on a boat. He is defeated somewhere off the coast of uh, of, of Turkey, oh. possibly at the Battle of Kurzola, which is a huge battle that happened around this time period. Venice was this up and coming, like very powerful uh, trade empire. Genoa was arguing with them. There was a huge battle that took place uh, around this time and something like 100 Venetian galleys on one side, 80 Genoan on the other, huge losses, uh, huge destruction, lots of death. Nothing like he'd seen with the Mongols, but lots of death and destruction and, and dying. And Marco Polo and the Venetians are crushed, right? And and there was a chance that the, this type might like break the Venetian Republic. They recover, but this was really, really dark moment for Venice's history. Yeah. So Marco Polo <laughs> is defeated. He surrenders. His ship is bashed up. A lot of his crew are dead. The Venetian fleet is mostly destroyed. He is put in shackles. 
and his ship is towed from the the waters off the coast of of Adana, Turkey, to Genoa, uh-huh. and he is imprisoned in a tower in Genoa, overlooking the the sea there. And he is kind of just thrown into this tower and locked oh, up. No. Oh no! So our boy's in the slammer. He's in the slammer for just like for four years. He's in prison oh. for four years by the Genoans. Yeah. His cellmate is another person who had been captured by the Genoans. His cellmate in the tower is a dude named Rusticello, uh, which I don't know if the CH is a hard CH or a soft CH. It's a hard and, C, yeah. Okay, Rusticello. Rusticello? Yeah. Okay. Rusticello. Uh-huh. Okay. Rusticello yeah. de Pisa. He was a dude from Pisa who the Genoans had overtaken that, and they took this guy and they imprisoned him in the tower. Rusticello de Pisa is the first Italian person to write about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table in Italy. He was a famous author who had written King Arthur stories for the people of Italy. He wrote in French and he wrote in Italian. He was a best-selling author who had been kind of imprisoned and thrown in this tower. And he is Marco Polo's cellmate. And here is a thing that is 100% worth mentioning when talking about Marco Polo is that he had no intention of telling anybody about what he had done in China until he was locked in a tower with this best-selling fiction writer for four years. So it's like if like in some like alternate timeline, I go out and have adventures and then somehow I wind up being locked in a cell with like Stephen King or something. Right. And you have nothing to do except talk about your lives. Yeah. And Marco Polo is just like, well, yeah, I was in China for a while. And Ristichello is like, okay. What'd you do there? <laughs> Get a pen. And then over the course of this four years, they write Marco Polo's memoirs, which he had no intention of doing, which I love. And I, I feel like I cannot yeah. stress enough uh-huh. that he had no yeah. plans to write any of this okay. down. <laughs> or at least that's what he said. Right. That's the shtick that he's, that's the persona that he's, I don't know. I believe it's accurate okay. because when you read this yeah. stuff that uh-huh. he wrote, he is... A business guy. He's a finance guy. He was. It's very clear that he was very personable in real life. But when he, he the way he thinks about things is like, then this had it had twelve gates and it had forty seven bridges and uh-huh. then yeah. we ate this and it was made out of th- it had this much weight of marble on it and blah blah blah. He's just like he's a bean counter. Yeah. And he talks like he writes like a bean counter. <laughs> but Rustichello is like, I think I can spice this up a little bit. Spice. Oh yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> And over the course of four years, they write this uh, this story of Marco Polo's adventures in China. And in 1299, the war between Genoa and Venice ends and they're released and they go to publish it. And Marco Polo wants to call it, call the book Description of the World, which is a very Marco Polo thing that he would want to do. That's what he would want to call it. Rustichello decides he wants to call it the great book of marvels of the world, uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. The Italians know it as the millions. Il milione, yeah. Because that's that was Marco's nickname later on in life, and that's what they call the book is the millions. In, in English, we just call it the travels of Marco Polo. But whatever the names, this blew everyone's minds. And it's what you said. It's written in an illuminated manuscript by a professional, by a best-selling romance author. This is the movie adaptation of Marco Polo's life written like with with the author's help Mm -hmm. by a dude who is like good at this stuff, right? And so when it comes out between the animal stuff and the the travels and all like everything that comes out, this is like reading a sci-fi 
story, right? It's like reading, it's like reading Gulliver's Travels, right? Yeah. right for the later generation, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like what? This doesn't, no way this exists in real life. And I, and, and that's one thing I love about it. Everybody in the time period was like, this is bullshit. You're, you're full of shit, right? Yeah. Like, there's no way this is yeah. happening. Like, this is comic book. No way. You're totally lying. This is made up. This is fantasy. Right. And even today, when we can Google image search some of this stuff, like there's there's people who are like, no, he was lying because it said that like that Xanadu had 27 gates, but we know from the schematics that it actually had 25. So he's totally exaggerating. He probably didn't even go there. And it's like, okay, look, he is writing about things that he remembered from 17 years before, and it's being filtered through another dude, a best-selling fiction novelist. Yeah. And the original manuscript of this was written in a language called Franco-Venetian, which was then translated into all these other languages and things got lost in translation. And also the other translators interpreted their own stuff. So entire passages appear in various translations of this book that don't appear in the original. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, going specifically with like, does it have 25 gates or 27 gates? When you're talking about manuscripts, numbers are like the most likely to get messed up because they're just so arbitrary, you know? I don't remember how old I am like half the time. <laughs> same, same. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely not going to, like, if you ask me how many windows there are on the front of my house, I don't think I could tell you accurately. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Marco Polo, like, is right about a lot of this stuff because he does remember these things because he is a bean counter. Yeah. Yes. So he is right about a lot of this stuff, but like they're like he didn't even mention the Great Wall of China, and it's like he probably didn't go there. Yeah. <laughs> or or like also sometimes you don't mention the things that are just so friggin' obvious. Sure. He just didn't come up. We didn't think of it. He didn't write it down. Rusticello didn't think it was interesting. Yeah. yeah. So Marco Polo gets a lot of credit for like oh he you know introduced the West to China or like he brought spaghetti back, which people think like there, there's a a long standing. Uh, urban legend that like when he came back he brought uh, a lo mein with him and that became spaghetti like that's this is old right the, uh -huh. the silk road has existed forever yeah. like yeah. none of this stuff was none of the things that he brought back were like the first time anybody had ever seen this thing his contribution to western civilization is that he wrote like the first like travel book on what's up in the east right now yeah and people yeah. were like dude, this is awesome. I want to go there. And that inspired an entire future generation of explorers, which became the age of discovery of like, how can we build a boat that will sail us there faster? How can we get here that doesn't involve walking through sandstorms or like riding on a camel through the Gobi Desert? But this is how this is how Europeans got their like stuff together to go discover the Americas. Right, exactly. Like they they were kind of insulated in, you know, a lot of the stuff that was written in this time period is religious related, mm -hmm. religious texts, things like that, right? You know, maybe maybe there were people in Venice who wanted to go visit the Holy Land, but, you know, the realm of Kublai Khan was not a, Yuan Dynasty China was not a very high priority on like the, the, the wish list for life travel, right? It wasn't on a lot of people's bucket lists to see <laughs> Xanadu yeah. uh -huh. until Marco Polo got back and was like, actually, this is like the most awesome thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And the way he wrote about it and the way he described it. And so, yeah, so he kind of blows everybody's mind with this. And like, it helps, it, he provides some contribution for like some early cartography. He brought maps back with him, which helped the the Western world kind of create maps. It's kind of how we how we located where Japan is. Yeah. And some of the some of the the Southeast Asian islands that mm -hmm. that uh, Marco Polo had visited. 
they weren't on any European maps. And um, there's a lot of contribution that he provides to the West that way. He also like, you know, one thing I had talked about him not being like a super religious kind of mm-hmm. hardliner. Yeah, like and, he was open to other things. Right. And so he recorded other things, yeah. right? Like yeah. I think if a, if those Dominican monks had gone with him and had the same adventure as him and come back, they wouldn't have described the intricate details of the Buddhist religion, right? Or the culture or the language or the, the, the characters that they use. They don't use the alphabet, they use characters, right? There's all of these, you know, the, the kind of dress they wore and the way they spoke and... There are things that Marco Polo notes that uh, maybe you are a little bit more cultural and maybe wouldn't have been mentioned by somebody who was like, oh, this is all heresy, right? Mm-hmm. Or this is all idolatry or whatever. And so, uh, you know, I think he should get some credit for for that. And, and yeah, his discoveries kind of helped to kind of spark not just the the renaissance in italy but also this age of discovery age of exploration like all of these guys the vasco da gamas and the mm-hmm. columbuses and yeah. the and the magellans they've read marco polo's book and were like you know if not just the the lure of the amazingness of this realm and i want to see it but hey there's probably some money to be made here if we could get out there, right? Like also true, right? Even from a purely like cynical point of view, like hey, we, exploitative, right? If I can get out there and trade <laughs> trade for some of this tea, like yeah. maybe I can make some money, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, tea, hmm. and uh, and yeah, so that was his contribution. It was the book that he wrote that he didn't mean to write uh-huh. from adventures that he had that he didn't grow up thinking he was going to have. He becomes this celebrity across the western world he's rich and famous he he's 45 when he gets out of jail and then he finally like he gets married for the first time uh he he gets married he has three daughters um he's wealthy he's famous he's a powerful venetian merchant good on him and yeah and he lives to be an old man and never goes back to china because i think probably china's kind of a schlep it's a bit of a hike for him and also there's a lot of people there that probably don't like it yeah (laughs) probably made some enemies well who are going to be a little jealous of him being good friends with kublai khan yeah and Uh, Yeah, he dies an old man in bed in June of 1324. His last words were, I have not told half of what I have seen. Oh, Marco, Marco, you're holding (laughs) out. Yeah, I love him. He's just kind of this everyman who goes on this crazy adventure. A very open-minded everyman. Yeah, Yeah, which I think is awesome. Yeah. If you'd like to read any more about Marco Polo, I really encourage you to read his book, In English, it's called The Travels of Marco Polo. It's very good, and it gives you really good insight into the guy that I think he might surprise you. It surprised me in a really good way. So, you know, he's very dry. He's a lot of nuts and bolts and numbers and long descriptions of things that you're like, get to the point, Marco. But it's worth reading because it's his own words, and he dictated it himself, and it's only filtered through a few people who were trying to make it marketable. I also really enjoyed, um, I read Marco Polo by Milton Rugoff, and there's a book called Marco Polo from Venice to Xanadu by Lawrence Bergreen, which are both worth checking out, if nothing else, then because they kind of fact check the travels of Marco Polo, his, his, his autobiography. So you can check those out, and I encourage you to do so if you want to learn more about this guy. So anyway, that's our show for today, and uh, thank you so much for listening, and, and we'll, see you, uh, we'll see you next week. Badass of the Week is an iHeartRadio podcast produced by High Five Content. 
Executive producers are Andrew Jacobs, me, Pat Larish, and my co-host, Ben Thompson. Writing is by me and Ben. Story editing is by Ian Jacobs, Brandon Fibbs, and Allie Lamer. Mixing and music and sound design is by Jude Brewer. Consulting by Michael May. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeart. Badass of the Week is based on the website badassoftheweek.com, where you can read all sorts of stories about other badasses. If you want to reach out with questions, ideas, you can email us at badasspodcast at badassoftheweek.com. If you like the podcast, subscribe, follow, listen, and tell your friends and your enemies if you want, as we'll be back next week with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot slash iHeart.